Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we read with David his protest that his life is hard. We pray that you would teach us to lament well in our darkness, but more especially in our darkness, that the light of Christ would shine brightly in our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. I imagine almost everyone, at least in the Western world, knows who David is. They at least know that he was this man, or actually a boy at the time, who threw a stone and killed a giant named Goliath. That might be all that people know about him. But of course, if you know a little bit more, you know that he threw that stone or slung that stone, as the case might be, in order to defend Israel against the insults of this Philistine Goliath, in order to defend the honor of God's army. David, of course, as most of you know, went on to be the king of Israel. His legacy is by and large positively remembered. But the context of this psalm that we read this morning most likely comes out of a less pleasant part of his life. Most likely, this psalm comes out of the time in which he met this woman, or more exactly, saw this woman named Bathsheba, and he thought to himself, well, she's rather pretty. I'd rather like to get to know her a little bit better. Unfortunately, Bathsheba was married, but that didn't stop David from pursuing her. And as most of you probably knew, he pursued her. They did things, and a child became conceived. This didn't stop David from from anything. Instead, he then orders Bathsheba's husband to be murdered functionally. He sends him out in front of the army, and he's killed. And so then David picked Bathsheba as his own wife. Scripture then tells us that this displeased God. That probably goes without saying, but we should say it anyways. And it's in this context which I think this psalm is written. It's in this context of where God is displeased with David. And first he, he, um, he rebukes him through the prophet Nathan. And then, out of tragedy, he takes David's son from Bathsheba. As, as the son grows older in Bathsheba's womb, he ends up being born and dies almost immediately. And it's in the midst of this sorrow that David pens these words which we read this morning. This psalm is a protest of what's going on and a lament. St. James tells us in his wonderful little epistle to watch what we say to guard our tongues there's several reasons that he tells us to do this, but part of this reason is that we would learn the posture of humility, that we would learn to be slow to anger, slow to speaking, and therefore able to listen, in part to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, that when we take the posture of prayer, that we would not only speak to God, but that we would listen to him. But this psalm starts with this this posture of silence, starts with this posture of not speaking. David says he's, he's guarded his mouth with a muzzle, so he can't speak. But then he can't hold it in any longer. 
and it becomes a protest. We can all relate to this feeling of exhaustion, this feeling of fear, or even despair. It's easy to think that we need to stay silent before God because, well, God is big and scary and way out there and we wouldn't want to upset him. And so we take St. James's exhortation very literally and we, we don't bring those feelings before the Lord. But this psalm reminds us, gives us permission to speak to God in our pain and to share that pain with him. If you don't believe me, it's backed up by Job's action, who does the same thing. And perhaps as you read this psalm this morning, you thought, well, that sounds an awful lot like the book of Job. It's a very similar posture, although very different circumstances for Job and, and David. But Job felt as David does here, and they bring their complaint to the Lord. And that teaches us something very important. God wants to hear from you in your time of despair. When your hearts are hot within you, God wants you to throw your prayers upon him to show him the state of your heart. But the psalm also points to something deeper. Last week, George told us, reminded us of that, wonder, that interesting moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays that the Father would take the cup from him, that he would let the cup pass by and he wouldn't have to drink of it. In that moment, Jesus felt fear. He was frightened of what would happen and his human nature, and, or his human will and his divine will wrestled within himself as he attempted to, as, he, as he wrestled with what he knew was about to happen. In another instance, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And we know the little verse that comes after that. It's, it's sometimes called the, the shortest verse in the Bible. It's simply, Jesus wept. Jesus felt sorrow. My friends, Jesus knows what it is like to protest against heartache. And he can sympathize with you in your fear, in your sorrow, in your despair. My friends, he has been there. He's not some far off God who can't possibly sympathize or understand you with what you're feeling, but he knows what you're feeling. But then Jesus walks towards the cross. And it's almost the opposite of what happens in the first three verses, right? The third verse, David's like, no, I'm going to tell you what I'm feeling. Jesus tells God, the Father, what he's feeling. But then silently, he walks towards the cross. He walks out of the Garden of Gethsemane as he's arrested and as he's brought to the cross and crucified. Isaiah tells us that the, that the Messiah who is fulfilled by Christ would be like a sheep led to slaughter that he would not protest. And so then Jesus holds his tongue. Jesus lived out perfect obedience, the perfect obedience that you and I fair, fail to, fall, to have in order that we might have light in our darkness, in order that we might have life and hope even in the midst of our protest. 
And then David enters into his protest. David's protest, if we read it carefully, is almost hopeless. It is heartbreaking to read. He starts with asking what the measure of his days are, what the ends of his days will be. Now, this isn't like in a sci-fi movie where somebody is like, well, I want to know how I'm going to die. And I feel like an answer to that would be, uh, the the answer I came up with would be, you know, an elephant escapes from the zoo and crushes somebody. (laughs) That's not what he wants to know. He doesn't want to know how he's going to die so he can prepare for it. No, he's so heartbroken and heartsick that he thinks that the only exit is through death. This is a song of despair. He believes that only death will bring him relief from the heart sickness that he's feeling. He also recognizes that man is fragile. In the shadow of that fragility, he wonders how God can discipline him so. As human beings, we have a tendency to think awful high of ourselves. But even if you're super healthy and live to the extent that you might live for 80, 100, 120 years, That's but a blink of an eye in the history of humanity. It's but a blink in the history of the world. And so we strive and strive and strive to control what happens. But just because he's been making the news an awful lot, Elon Musk will die just like you and I. Even if you have all the wealth in the world, all the wealth of somebody like Elon or, or Jeff Bezos or some other multi-billionaire, their fate is the same as yours. At the end, you cannot control that. And so as we read this section, you might be thinking, well, that actually sounds an awful like, lot like Ecclesiastes. Thinking, well, this sounds a lot like that vanity of vanities that we hear when we read the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you thought that, you're right. What he has in our translation and our little handout of it as a mere breath is actually the same word as, it, as is drawn out in our Psalter in our prayer book. It's the same word as vanity. David wonders, well, what is the meaning of life? This is just a breath, just a vanity under the shade of this sorrow and heartache. But if we think of Ecclesiastes and think of the theology that the preacher puts forth, he ends with his point. Fear God, he writes, and keep his commandments. Life is not vanity of vanities. Life is not a mere breath. But we were created to know God, to enjoy him forever, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever to fear God and to keep his commandments. But we fail to keep his commandments and even <clears throat> to even give perfect reverence to him. But our hope isn't that we have some sort of works righteousness. It isn't that we work out this thing to our own glory. But our hope is in Christ, who, as we saw just a minute ago, lived out this life perfectly lived out the life in perfect obedience for us. And so Christ, Christ gives us that hope. Christ is the protest against the idea that life is only vanity. 
We come to the middle of the psalm in verse 7. And David writes, Oh, now, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. At the center of the psalm, the pinnacle of David's protest, he remembers, I'm not hopeless. My hope is in God. My hope is in the Lord. Without hope, even a psychologist as secular as they can be will tell you without hope, life is, feels as though it is a breath, feels as though it is vanity. And Christ gives us that hope. Christ has given you this hope, that, but it's something more than just a vague hope. It's hope that gives you patience in waiting. It's hope that who we are becoming in Christ. When I first became a Christian, I came across this artist called, whose name was Rich Mullins. He's, he's since gone to his eternal rest. But he's kind of folksy and, and rather enjoyable compared to some, some Christian music. And he came up with a song, or he wrote a song called Hold Me, Jesus. And the part that always rings in my mind, especially when things are hard, is this, this line that goes, it's so hot inside my soul, much like what David protests. And he goes on that I swear there must be blisters in my heart. In these difficult times, it can feel as though things are hot, hard, and impossible. But in difficult times, in your travail, you learn humility. You learn to sit with God. You learn hope. You learn patience. Rich continues with the line, Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't need than take what you give and I need. Sounds an awful lot like David here. He fought and stole what he didn't need and in fact what was terrible and deadly for him. And now he's forced to surrender to the Lord. In our travail, in our difficulties, we learn this surrender because ultimately it is the surrender to God that gives us hope. It gives us meaning. It makes life not a travail. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus or you're struggling with your relationship with him, he is the only hope that will not fail you. He is more than a vague hope that maybe tomorrow will be a little bit better or maybe somehow this situation will solve itself. No, he's the hope that brings you to eternity. He is the hope that can give you joy even in the pits of life. He is the only protest that will last through the darkness. Cling to him. Make him your hope. David's protest then changes in verse 8 to a confession. It is God who is disciplining him for this sin. There are natural consequences to sin and bad behavior. I was thinking, if you drive 90 down Rosser, I guarantee you something bad will happen. You'll either crash into one of those islands or you'll get pulled over and arrested. There will be a natural consequence for that bad choice. There are consequences for sin. In fact, that's why the clock is ticking and death is coming. Because of sin in the world. 
In fact, Christ goes on to tell us even, even more so that in order for you to grow in holiness, God, who is a good father, will discipline you. Your struggles because of sin are not in vain. They're not meaningless. But rather, through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ, and because of what Christ has done to you, for you, rather, you have hope. Even in your darkest of days, there is hope. In this confession, David begs not to be the scorn of a fool. Because of the medieval ages, I suspect we usually think of a fool as the court jester. He comes out and he juggles or makes some sort of funny jokes. But that's not what a fool is here. He's not a silly or stupid person. He's a wicked person who mocks God. That's what David describes here. Please don't make me a fool of somebody who mocks you, Lord. But the irony here is that Christ was mocked by fools. Christ was hung upon a cross by those who mocked God. Christ suffered the reproach of scorn, the scorn of fools in order that you might have life. But he promises, he says also, that you, if you follow him, will suffer this reproach as well. He promised that his people, you and I, would seem as foolish to the world around us. If you are in Christ, you will be mocked by fools. But even if everyone around you says that Christianity is a thing for ignorant and stupid people, your life is not a life of vanity. Your life has meaning. Your life is a light in a dead and dying world. It is a protest against this darkness. Sadly, David ends verse 11 without much hope. He writes, you consume like a mouth what is dear to him. Surely mankind is a mere breath. You might wonder in your dark days, when will this come to an end? Perhaps it will be but a flash in in a long and beautiful life, or perhaps it will seem like eternity in the breath of your life. But there is hope for you. One of the ways that we can read this psalm is centering around Christ. The fools scorned him for you, and he took it like a sheep led to slaughter. He goes to his death for you that you might have life, that you might have hope in this life. While your worldly possessions will be consumed by moth, my moths, Christ lasts for eternity. You are not vanity. You are not a breath. Christ is your breath. Christ is the meaning of your life. Christ is the protest against the idea that, the li- that life is vanity, against the darkness of this world. So whatever brings you here this morning, Believe in that hope of Christ. David wraps up the last two verses of this psalm with a final plea that God would hear his prayer and remove this judgment that he might smile again. The presence of God's discipline can be unpleasant. It can be lonely. It can feel painful. 
Even if we just enter into the dark night of a soul, not for any given reason, but because that's what the life, what life has brought to us, it can feel as though God is up in heaven grimacing at us. But unlike David, we know that we will smile again. In fact, we can have joy in the darkness. The hard things of sanctification in this life lead to the joy of holiness in this life. But the fullness of our hope comes not from the joy of holiness in this life, but the fact that when this life ends, we will finally face Christ face to face. We will finally see his face and know the joy which he has for him, for us. In trial and strife, take hope. God will see you through. Have that protest of Christ in your heart. That you, that even if you tell God, even when you need to tell God of the burning inside your soul, you do not lose hope. For the fullness of your hope, the total of your protest against your sin, against the darkness of this world, is Christ alone. Cling to him with all your might. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.